from WBEZ Chicago. It's This American Life from Ira Glass. And I want to tell you about two police investigations. One of them is done so inspiringly well. It's like the detectives in it are like detectives on a television show. Smart and resourceful and great judgment and just police at their very best. The other case, same crime, lots of the same facts, is the opposite. It goes terribly. And the investigation that goes wrong goes wrong in a very unusual way. It's like a game of telephone where one misunderstanding begets another misunderstanding begets another until something that is not true spreads to an entire community of people and somehow hardens into the truth. And it happens incredibly fast. It happens in just three days. And just to get in front of this, the crime that we're going to be talking about this hour is a sexual assault. If that's a trigger for you, consider this a warning. And one of the first phone calls in this chain comes right after the crime. This is back in August 2008. A woman named Shannon was standing on her balcony in a Seattle suburb when she got the phone call. It was from an 18-year-old she knew named Marie, who told her she'd been woken up in the night by a stranger who raped her. And I, you know, I asked her, are you okay? And she, you know, said she was okay and that she was going to be staying, I think, with her friend that night. And... When my husband got home, I told him what had happened, but I said, I don't know that it happened. There's something about how she said it that just made me question whether or not she'd actually been raped. It was a tone of her voice. There was just no emotion. It was like she was telling me that she'd made a sandwich. I just made myself a chicken sandwich. Shannon felt awful, doubting Marie. She'd known Marie for years. Marie was a foster child who'd stayed with Shannon and her husband very briefly, just a couple weeks when she was younger. And it all hit it off. And she stayed close with Marie, even after Marie went to live in another foster home. They'd hang out together, cook together. They'd give up carbs together for a few weeks. Shannon loved Marie. She saw herself in Marie. They were alike in lots of ways. That was actually part of her doubt. Marie was emotional. She did cry, like Shannon. If I had been raped, I would have been hysterical. I would have been crying, really upset. Because <sighs> I was sexually abused as a child. And I was sexually assaulted as an adult. And I never told anyone for years and years. And when I did tell someone... I was hysterical, emotional, and crying and shame. But Shannon was wrong about Marie. Marie had been raped. It was proven later beyond a shadow of a doubt. And the way her case went wrong, you know, we've all heard stories about police not believing women who come forward and say that they were sexually assaulted. But in this case, the doubts began not with the police, but with people much closer to Marie, people who love her and have the best intentions towards her. What goes wrong in this case is something so personal. It's like people exercising empathy and getting it wrong. And then that mistake spreads to officials and friends and acquaintances until it is impossible for them all to see the truth, even when new proof comes to light, even when it's all right there in front of them. Our reporting today is a partnership with the Marshall Project and ProPublica. The first part of the story takes place mostly in Linwood, Washington, near Seattle. Marshall Project investigative reporter Ken Armstrong and one of our producers, Robin Semyon, will explain how all this unfolded, starting with Ken, who will explain a little more about Marie. 
Marie gets along with people. She's good at it. It's important to her. She moved around a lot when she was a kid in the foster care system. She thinks 10 or 11 different families, not including group homes. But she did well in a group, looked forward to high school, loved her classes, liked to hike and go to the beach with her friends, really got into photography. At 18, she was proud of herself for surviving the foster care system, got a job at Costco, her own apartment. It was just nice to be on my own and not have all the rules that I had had when being in foster care, and it was just like freedom, so it was just (laughs) awesome. She kept in touch with previous foster families, like Shannon and her last foster mom, Peggy. Shannon was the fun adult in Marie's life. They were goofballs together. They'd have sleepovers at Shannon's house, laugh a lot. Peggy, who'd been Marie's foster mom from 16 to 18, was more serious and teacherly, more tough love, more worried about Marie's big personality and free spirit getting in the way of Marie's becoming a responsible young adult. Peggy lived close, and on the morning of the assault, Peggy was the first adult Marie called. This is Peggy. It was so early in the morning, I just left, and I drove over there immediately. So the police were there, and Marie was sitting on the floor crying. I sat down next to her, and she was telling me what happened. And I, I got this, I'm a big uh, Law & Order fan, and I, got, I just got this really weird feeling. It was like, I felt like she was telling me the script of a Law, a Law & Order story. She was detached, detached, emotionally detached from what she was saying. It felt like, just what's this drama going on? But still, there was a part of me that was like, oh my God, I mean, if it is real, I need to respond. I remember being in shock and shaking in a blanket in the corner. Um, they, they asked me a few questions about what had happened and I had told them. I'd left my door unlocked and that some one had broken into my apartment and raped me. Again, this is Marie. She's 25 now. A quick warning, what she told police is difficult to hear, and definitely not for kids. Here's what happened. Marie was home by herself, and she was awake all night, talking on the phone with her ex-boyfriend, Jordan. Um, I got off the phone and went to sleep. And then opened my eyes and there was somebody in my house. He had a knife in his hand and was wearing a mask. He blindfolded me and gagged me and tied my hands behind my back. He raped her. He went through her stuff. He took pictures. He knew her name. Marie prayed he wouldn't kill her. And then after he was done with everything, he said, I shouldn't have left my door unlocked. Um... I guess was I must have left it unlocked the sliding glass door. And he just said that he was sorry, and it all looked better in his head than when he did it to me. He said if she went to the police, he'd put the pictures he had of her online. When the police arrived at Marie's apartment, they did what you'd expect. They processed the crime scene. A crime scene technician snapped photos of the place. It didn't look like much. An 18-year-old's tidy, bare-bones apartment. A sofa, a bike, a desktop computer on the floor in the corner. The bed was unmade, green comforter on the floor, a messy sheet. 
Marie was blindfolded and her attacker wore a mask, so there wasn't a real description. He wore gloves to avoid fingerprints. He wore a condom. But there was physical evidence. The police got fingerprints off the sliding glass door. Just beyond the glass door, on the back porch, it looked like someone had brushed off a dusty railing while climbing over it. Police collected the bedding, hoping for DNA, maybe fibers or hairs. There was a rape kit and a report, noting bruising on both of Marie's wrists, plus other bruising and abrasions consistent with sexual activity. When police searched the apartment, they found the things Marie had said the man had used, the knife, the makeshift blindfold and gag, the shoelaces used to tie her up with. That's when Marie realized that all of those things were hers to begin with. The knife was from her kitchen. The shoelaces came from her sneakers out in the living room. Peggy remembers hearing about the shoelaces and adding them to her list of things that just didn't make sense. And I just, I just, the the whole thing with the shoelaces, I was like, first of all, is a shoelace strong enough to tie somebody's wrists with? For Peggy, this behavior fit into a bigger picture she had of her foster daughter, that Marie was attention-seeking, loud, either not caring or not being aware how she was coming off in public, like at the grocery store, riding around in grocery carts with her friends. Getting really silly, Peggy said. Peggy was often telling Marie, tone it down. Be aware of how people see you. Peggy saw this as part of her job as a parent, to teach this to Marie. Part of her M.O. is to be really, really outrageous and to say things that make people react. Like this picnic that we went on, there was some guy that was watching her because she was being so outrageously flaunty flirty. And, you know, I tried to have a conversation with her about toning it down a little bit because you're drawing a lot of attention to yourself right now. I told her. And could get you in trouble, too. So to Peggy, Marie calling everyone she knew and saying, hey, I got raped, didn't seem right to her. She wondered, was this rape story one more way to get attention? Marie, meanwhile, says, sure. She was calling everyone she knew for what she thought was a good reason. I think I did that because I didn't, you know, want it to happen to anybody else. I just wanted to let people know that there was somebody out there hurting people. It wasn't the first time I had been raped and I was little and I was living with my mom. I never told anybody about that stuff that had happened to me when I was a kid. I just held it all in and did my whole pretending like stuff didn't happen. And, you know, I don't know if that guy ever got away or ended up hurting other people because I never told anybody, never talked to anybody about it. But I didn't want this time to be like that, you know? I wanted to be able to try to talk about it and get it out. So Marie was calling around, and later that day, or maybe it was the next morning, Peggy made a phone call of her own to Shannon, the other main adult in Marie's life. Here's Peggy. I just said, I don't know what the hell is going on. I... I can't tell, you know, she, I was like, oh, my God, you know, she's telling me that she got raped. But but I felt, I just felt horrible. I felt horrible that I didn't believe her. And so 
I think Shannon must have just picked up on that. And then she, she was like, Peggy, you're not the only one that doesn't believe her. She's acting very strange. She's telling everybody about it. She's calling everybody that she knows and telling them. This doesn't seem like what you would do. Shannon remembers that phone call with Peggy, too. Well, Peggy also didn't believe her. So looking back, we may have fed on each other's doubts about what had happened. The day after the rape, Shannon helped Marie move out of her apartment. Marie's case manager, who was helping her transition from foster care, was also there. And Shannon says that whole day she kept noticing these things, little things, and each one deepened her suspicion. Marie wouldn't look her in the eye. She wouldn't hug her. She didn't want to talk about the rape. Instead, she was giggling, rolling around on the grass, being flirty, as Shannon saw it, with the case manager. For me, the thing that cemented my doubts was she was given a, like a a visa card to go pick out new sheets and bedding because the police had taken them for evidence. So we went back to the place where she'd gotten the original ones, and she was furious that she couldn't buy the same set because she really liked it. I'm thinking, why would you want to have the same sheets and bedspread to look at every day when you'd been raped on this bed set? I said, why would you want to have those sheets to remind you? And she goes, because I like them. I just thought that was such a strange response. That was the only time I saw her get mad the whole day. Do you think you were starting to look for things that didn't ring true? I don't know if I was looking for them. They just kept popping up. I mean, flirting with the manager and rolling in the grass and giggling. Shannon confronted Marie about what she saw as her odd behavior. I did. No, I I told her that I had doubts about her, whether or not she was telling the truth. And how did she react? She would get upset and she'd say, you know, I'm not really a liar. Why would I lie about this thing? Here's what I thought. Again, this is Peggy. Peggy had her own theory for why Marie might be lying about this. I thought, okay, in my mind, Marie got herself into trouble. She got carried away with some kind of sexual encounter and she let somebody take pictures of her and now they're going to get out on the internet and she's trying to backtrack and you know maybe I didn't trust the police and maybe I didn't think they were understanding the nature of my daughter's personality you know I mean it's more uh histrionics, you know, like histrionic personality. It seemed like her her next tactic to try to get my attention. One day after the rape, Peggy called the lead detective on the case, Detective Jeffrey Mason. She asked if she could uh, meet with me in person. And so I agreed, um, went to her residence, met with her. Um, She was having questions about the story that was being told whether it was uh, truthful or not. She seemed, you know, sincere. She was trying to pass on information that, um, and maybe maybe sincere is not the, the correct terminology, but, I mean, she was just, you know, 
She expressed um, a lot of concern um, and, and caring for Marie, but also had, you know, a lot of questions on whether she was reporting the truth or not. Sergeant Mason didn't have a lot of experience investigating sexual assault. Marie's was only the second or third case that he'd worked on. How much weight did you give Peggy's opinion of Marie's credibility or, or of, you know, the, the potential truthfulness of what Marie said had happened? I gave it enough weight to steer the investigation to where I need to talk to Marie further. Was there anything that you were using that is evidence-based to get you to this moment of wanting to talk to her again about her credibility? No. Sergeant Mason says there were a few other elements to Marie's story that it cost him to question her. But it was really the call from Peggy that changed everything. He talks to his partner, and three days after the attack, Detective Mason calls Marie. And they said they needed to see me. And I just, all of a sudden, I was just like, am I in trouble? That was my first, before I said anything else on the phone, am I in trouble? One of the first things she said was, am I in trouble? And that just, well, in the, in the 25 years um, in law enforcement, um, my experience has been people that ask that are usually in trouble. They said, well, we just need you to come into the police station. Mason and his partner, Detective Jerry Rickgarn, took Marie back to a conference room to talk. And it was a very different conversation from the first time police talked to Marie. Now it was an interrogation. She says the first thing they did was tell her. They'd spoken to Peggy, and they'd spoken to her ex-boyfriend, Jordan. And neither of them believed her about being raped. Peggy was one thing, but Jordan was a friend. He and Marie spoke all the time. They talked about maybe getting back together, and he'd been supportive and sympathetic about the rape. Marie suddenly had to try and figure out what these detectives meant. The police were very closed off on telling me anything that Peggy or Jordan said. They wouldn't tell me anything that they said at all, because he wanted me to tell him. And I couldn't. So uh, he was just like, yeah, um, is there any reason why he wouldn't believe you? And I said, I don't know. We talked to Jordan, and he says he never doubted Marie, and he never told the police he did. In any case, both detectives wrote in their reports that Marie seemed unsure of her story. Detective Rickgarn wrote that he found Marie to be making, quote, deceptive statements to include that she thought certain things had happened, rather than she was positive that this happened. Rickgarn noted that she didn't, quote, take a stand and demand that she'd been raped. Detectives made it clear to Marie they needed to be convinced. Years later, there was an outside review of the case by a police investigator a sex crime specialist named Sergeant Greg Rinta. His report said, quote, The manner in which she was treated by Sergeant Mason and Detective Rickgarn can only be labeled as bullying and coercive. Detective Rickgarn declined to talk to us. Sergeant Rinta's review went on, quote, If this hadn't been documented in their reports, I would have been skeptical that this actually happened. The victim's credibility, quote, became the focus of the investigation, and all of the strong evidence that pointed to a serious felony crime was completely ignored. Here's Marie. There's there really some guy out there that we need to be looking for, or did you just make this up? 
and they just started asking me all these questions and just grilling at me <clears throat> and I just started crying like I was crying and I was upset I didn't understand what was going on really um I just I'm still in shock that they didn't believe me I was mad too I had pound my hand on the table and stuff like that and the only way they would leave me alone is if I wrote a statement saying that it didn't happen. So she did. She first wrote, quote, I dreamed someone broke in and raped me. The detectives then insisted that she rewrite it and not write that she had dreamed it, but that she had lied. There are lots of reasons a victim of sex abuse might consciously choose to say something different from what happened. Shame, fear of retribution. But Marie says that isn't what was happening with her. She started having moments where she actually couldn't tell if she'd been raped. And like I was trying to be really honest um, about everything and, you know, possibly maybe I had dreamt that stuff, that first statement, maybe that I had dreamt it up and that it maybe didn't happen and stuff like that. And so those doubts were coming out when I was talking to them. And they just started disbelieving me even more. And then all of a sudden, I just started thinking, I was like, did this, you know, did this really just happen to me? You know, this whole thing. In my mind, I was second-guessing somebody coming into my house and doing all this stuff, you know. Is it possible that I just imagined that? Because why would something like that happen to me? I ran how Marie describes this, not being sure herself that the assault happened by an expert on sex assault trauma and how it affects the brain. She said that this kind of cognitive separation, she called it, while not common, does happen, that it's directly related to the sheer shock an assault has on a person, like, for example, being awoken by a stranger with a knife, and that people who have been sexually abused before, like Marie, are at a much higher risk for this happening. Add foster care to that, and the risk is greater. At the end of that day, I was just like... Fine, it did, all didn't happen because, you know, now I have nobody that believes me. I just wanted it to be over with, so. So Marie did something familiar to her. She has a way to deal with terrible things happening to her that are out of her control, which she calls flipping the switch. That feeling switch inside, just, I turned it to not really caring about the emotion and thought, well, just turn off that switch. <laughs> I don't have to deal with them right now. Just, I want to get out of here. What does it look like when you kind of decide to flip the switch and stop caring so much? What is that? How does your demeanor change when you're speaking to the police officer? Well, I'm not crying anymore. I'm looking at them when I'm talking to them. And I think I was giggling, which is something I do when I'm nervous. Like, I just, just pretended like that didn't just really happen, you know, and uh, I went in the bathroom after that and cleaned up and just kind of acted like it was fine. Both detectives noticed the switch. Rick Garn wrote, quote, Her visual appearance and body language became remarkably different. She appeared less stressed, stopped crying, and even laughed a little. Marie wrote her final statement for the detectives at their insistence. Quote, I made up this story, she wrote. King 5 News starts now. Good evening. Police in Linwood now say a woman who claims she was sexually assaulted by a stranger made up the story. 
This news story ran one day after Marie met with detectives and wrote those statements. Earlier this week, the 18-year-old told detectives a man had broken into her apartment, raped her, and then stayed for an extended period of time. But upon further questioning, the woman admitted the assault did not happen. Detectives do not know why she made the story up. At least three other stations aired similar stories. Reporters chased it. Like I had to hide. Like I had to wear a sweatshirt over my face and sneak out of my apartment because there were just so many just pounding on my door. The backlash was immediate. Marie got hate-filled MySpace messages, angry phone calls. One of Marie's best friends from high school put up a website attacking Marie, warning people she was a liar. It had the police reports with the statement she'd written about making up the story. It had her name and her picture. For Marie, it was too much. Police didn't believe her. Her foster moms didn't believe her. And it was all over the news. It felt like the world had turned against her. And remember, she was 18 years old, trying to figure this out. She wanted a lawyer. And she had a support system that could have helped her find one. She lived in her own apartment, but it was subsidized by a nonprofit that helped teenagers like Marie transition out of foster care. Project Ladder, it was called. They taught life skills like how to use a credit card, how to shop for groceries. They were there to give her a hand. So she asked them to help her find a lawyer. Instead, her case manager called the police, who told him there was no evidence that a rape had occurred. They did not get her a lawyer. So then they said, okay, well, we're going to go to the police station. You're going to tell them that. You know, you're going to tell them that it really did happen. You're going to be honest. When they got to the station, Detective Mason, the lead detective in her case, wasn't there. He was out that day. So Detective Rickgarn grabbed another cop to help out. Here's Marie. I told him that I wanted to recant and that it really did happen. They should be out there looking for a rapist. Rickgarn didn't believe her. The other cop didn't know the case and was just following Rickgarn's lead. Marie says one of the detectives told her that if she kept insisting she was raped, she might have to take a polygraph test. He told me that if uh, I took a lie detector test and it came back that I was lying, that he was going to take me to jail himself. Using a polygraph on a rape victim is a mistake, a big enough one that the federal government can withhold money from states if their police departments do it. The tests are seen as a deterrent to women coming forward to report sexual assault. Plus, they're famously unreliable, especially on someone who's traumatized. Rickgarn's report says it was actually Marie who brought up the polygraph, not the cops. But what's not in dispute is that once the idea of a polygraph came up, Detective Rickgarn used it to threaten Marie. It's a tactic police use when they're interrogating someone they suspect in a crime. Detective Rickgarn told Marie that if she failed the polygraph, he'd recommend she lose her housing assistance and get jail time. Well, that scared me, so I didn't want to do that. And so I was like, okay, never mind. It really didn't happen. I didn't want to go to jail. (laughs) That night, the Project Ladder managers called a meeting. It was just an emergency meeting, and they didn't tell anybody why until everybody got there. This is Elizabeth, another former foster kid in the Project Ladder program. She was there at the meeting, along with nine or so others, mostly girls, and the program managers sitting in chairs in a circle. 
Marie remembers it as the lowest moment of this whole ordeal. The one time she thought about suicide. Again, here's Elizabeth. Uh, Marie stood up and she was crying. And she said that she had lied about what had happened. To the group? To the group. Yeah, everybody. I mean, it just felt like she was just forced to say that and that it was, she, I mean, there was nothing in in her words or actions that she meant. I mean, it was more of, of defeat is what it sounded like, you know, just kind of giving up on trying to prove herself. She just seemed devastated and lost. It actually sounds really confusing from your perspective. Were you wondering why is she being made to say this? I mean, I, I really was because I didn't I didn't know her. And I, I mean, at first I didn't really know what to believe. You know, it's just kind of an odd thing to say, oh, well, I made it up. I think maybe my own personal experiences kind of came through when I, when she said that and, and I kind of. What kind of personal, personal experiences? Um, I've, I mean, I, um, was sexually assaulted and so I mean, um, being afraid of, of saying anything and then, and then not having anybody to believe you. And then just kind of trying to forget about it, I guess. Trying to... Trying to move on. Move on. Yeah. Elizabeth felt for Marie. She says there were a couple others who looked like they did too. But they were in the minority. Mainly, Marie says, people were angry. They were pretty mad about it. One of the girls, she was calling me and making... uh, threats at me, thought I was a liar and basically mentally ill for making up something like that. I spoke to one of the meetings, Angry Girls. She didn't want to be interviewed, but she told me she thought Marie had lied, and it did make her mad. But she also said, and Elizabeth told me this too, there was something so obvious and transparent about the premise of the meeting. It was a message to everyone. We're making her tell you this, so none of you think about doing it. If you do, you'll lose your housing. Elizabeth described the woman running the meeting as fuming. We reached out to the project ladder managers, but they never replied. Elizabeth stuck by Marie and one other friend. Friend-wise, that was about it. Elizabeth says Marie was avoided, like... The plague, yeah. I mean, that's exactly how it was. People treated her like she was... They couldn't get far enough away from her. And people, they were very cruel to her. Of course, the phone calls and the nasty stuff on social media. I mean, I I even believe, like, when we'd walk through the parking lot or we'd go somewhere, somebody would, you know, say something or calling her a whore and die and just a lot of really horrible stuff. I mean, I even remember reading one of the comments on the it was it was on the internet but i don't remember what exactly page it was or anything but like this bitch is the reason that nobody believes when women say they get raped wow yeah i mean there was a lot of that even shannon who meant the world to marie she told marie that she couldn't spend the night at her house anymore 
because her husband worried she might make up a story about him. And if all that weren't enough, about a week later, Marie received a summons in the mail. Police were charging her with false reporting. The false reporting charge meant that Marie's rape case would be officially closed. The physical evidence police had gathered at the scene was destroyed, except for a single fingerprint card that was left behind. Everything else, the rape kit, the bedding, the DNA swabs, they were never even tested in a crime lab, never analyzed. Further evidence that could have been gathered never was. Two months after Marie was charged with false reporting, Shannon was sitting at home, watching the local news with her husband, when on came a story about a woman in Kirkland, another Seattle suburb, who reported being raped by a stranger who broke in, threatened her with a knife, used shoelaces to tie her up, and who took pictures and threatened to post them on the internet. Right away, I thought, I'm wrong. She, it, it actually happened. She was raped, because this is too similar. So I immediately went in and called the Kirkland Police Department and asked to speak to the lead detective on the rape case. And I explained the whole situation about what had happened to Marie and that the Linwood police didn't believe her, but it was just too similar and it had just happened. So I asked them to call, you know, the Linwood police. Then he got back to me and said he did talk to them, but they had determined that she had made the whole thing up and the case was closed and that was the end and it was over. I talked to the lead detective that Shannon spoke to and to another Kirkland detective on this case. Both remember talking to the Linwood PD. But when they learned the Linwood police didn't believe their victim, that was it. They didn't look any further. One detective said she figured the Linwood police knew their case best. She trusted their judgment. Even so, one thing they both told me they were surprised by was that the Linwood police had gone so far as to charge Marie with false reporting. One detective remembers hanging up the phone thinking, okay, hope that works out for you guys. Shannon grew up in a police family. She usually figured police knew best. Not this time. I was upset. I, I thought there should have been more investigation, that it was just too similar. Shannon thought something had to be done. She thought Marie should get in touch with the Kirkland police herself. She told Marie... If it did happen, then here's a second chance to go talk to the police about what happened to you because this just happened to another woman, but she wouldn't go. And so that then made me doubt again. Why wouldn't she want to get involved to try and prove that she was innocent? Marie didn't want to talk to anybody else about the rape, especially not police again. The very thought terrified her. What she wanted, more than anything, was to put this behind her. In March of 2009, seven months after she was raped, Marie went to court to accept a plea deal on her false reporting charge. Under the deal, to get the charge dropped, she would need to meet certain conditions for a year. She'd go on supervised probation, pay $500 in court costs, 
and she'd get mental health counseling, not for being raped, but for lying about it. Coming up, today's program is about two police investigations of the same crime. The second investigation, where the police do a stunningly great job in a minute when our program continues. This is American Life from Ira Glass. Today's program, Anatomy of Doubt. We have the story of two criminal investigations. One goes great, one goes about as badly as it possibly could. We now turn to the successful investigation. It happens in a suburb of Denver called Golden, Colorado. The lead detectives in this second case were very experienced versus the lead detective in the first case who only had done a, one or two other rape cases. This was stated earlier, but I'll just repeat it here. The content of today's program probably isn't right for little kids. Here are Ken Armstrong and Robin Simeon. Two years later, January 2011, Detective Stacy Galbraith got a case. A grad student, mid-20s, had been sexually assaulted in her home, raped at gunpoint. To cover his tracks, her attacker took her sheets with him and made her shower to wash off any DNA. And when she went to interview the victim, Detective Galbraith says, the victim remembered an unusual number of details about the guy, way more than any other rape victim she'd talked to before. The victim had basically chatted him up, and he told her things, like he spoke four different languages. And she was able to kind of rattle off a few of those. He traveled a lot. He talked about math. He told her that he has, you know, no problem with finding girlfriends or having girlfriends, um, but he just doesn't like the consensual aspect of the girlfriend relationship. The victim had a good guess of his height and weight and knew that he had a distinct mark on his leg, a birthmark, she told Detective Galbraith, the size and shape of an egg. He'd had a camera with him, and she remembered the color and brand of the camera. She described it as a pink Sony. Detective Galbraith noted that the victim wasn't crying, shouldn't seem upset. She was very kind of stoic in her report of this incident. You could even say she had more of a flat affect, actually. Was there anything unusual about that? Very unusual. Typically, I mean, I encounter somebody, say, in the hospital or on a scene that's um, crying, upset, much more, I would say, visibly traumatized than, than this victim was. She talked about this guy and the horrible, my word is horrible, things that he did to her for a number of hours. And... In relation to other victims, you know, they probably would have said horrible. They would have been um, revealing the horrible side of the things that they'd done. She, I remember we were walking outside for some reason. I don't know why we were outside. And she was talking about um, that he was a gentleman, um, calm, mild-mannered. And I, I just, I remember just thinking, how can anyone after this happened call this person a gentleman? Detective Galbraith, at this point, had worked dozens of rape cases, maybe 50. She admitted she didn't totally get her victim, but that it didn't get in the way of her investigating the crime. Detective Galbraith talked to her husband about the case that night, and her husband, a police officer in another town, remembered a case just like it in his department in Westminster. So Detective Galbraith contacted Westminster PD the next morning to look at their case file. Details, almost identical. The lead detective on that case, Edna Hendershot, says there was one striking connection. In my assault, my victim was the victim of a theft also of a pink Sony 
CyberShot camera that was stolen from her. And um, Stacy knew that her victim was photographed using a pink Sony CyberShot camera. Detective Hendershot also said there was a third rape in another town nearby, which made them think there could be a serial offender. The three departments did something that doesn't always happen with different police departments. They started meeting, working together. Each department had come up with some kind of trace DNA associated with their victims. Not the definitive kind that can positively ID a suspect, but not nothing either. The samples were tested for similarities, and the results showed that they were connected, paternally, meaning the three DNA samples had to be the same guy or men in the same family. About five weeks into Detective Stacy Galbraith's investigation, there's a big meeting. Federal, state, and local investigators are there, and a fourth local department, too. And in that meeting, someone new to the group, a female crime analyst, stands up. She'd done a search for suspicious vehicles in the vicinity of an attempted rape. Detective Hendershot says, at the very end of the meeting, She happens to mention, just so the group knows, I came across this Mazda truck that was near this crime scene, just so the group knows. Well, when Stacy hears that, Stacy's like, wait a second, what did you say? I tell him, I said, that's a truck on, on our surveillance video that wasn't very relevant until right now. It just all came together one second. It was just a... Detective Stacy Galbraith had only seen the truck on a fuzzy surveillance video. But this analyst had the make, model, and license plate. It was registered to a guy named Mark O'Leary. Detective Hendershot, always reluctant to get too ahead of herself, remembers thinking, Wow, that's a pretty big piece of evidence, potentially. What they needed now was a DNA sample for Mark O'Leary to see if it tied him to the crimes. So FBI agents stake out Mark's house. The plan was to wait for him to leave, then they'd split up, have a few agents follow him while others put up surveillance cameras outside his house while he was gone. When Mark leaves his house, agents trail him. But what they didn't know is that Mark O'Leary had a brother who lived with him in the same house. So the guy they were following wasn't Mark at all, but his slightly younger, similar-looking brother. So when other agents go to the apartment and knock on the door, expecting it to be empty, they're shocked when Mark answers. The agents think quickly. Say they're informing people in the neighborhood about a burglar. They even have a flyer with a phony suspect photo to show him. The conversation ends. Mark goes inside. Meanwhile, Mark's brother is eating in a diner. And when he's done, agents swoop in to get DNA off his glass. Which brings them closer to their answer, but still not all the way there, because while DNA from the brother does link the brother's family line to the crimes, it does not tell them which brother committed them. Here's Detective Galbraith. So at this point, we're like, you know, crap. It could be either one, really. We need to see the leg of both of them. For a birthmark. They need to see that birthmark. Two days later, Detective Galbraith and her team go to Mark's house. And Mark comes to the door, and, you know, we have weapons out. And I tell him, you know, that we have a search warrant for the house, and I pat him down to make sure he doesn't have any weapons. He's got real baggy clothes on when he comes out, and so when I'm patting him down, 
I lifted up both pant legs. And I saw the mark. What'd you think when you saw the mark? He's, he's the guy. And he needed to be in handcuffs. He was very surprised. He went um, almost blue. She arrested him. Galbraith says it's the most satisfying case she ever worked on. When the police searched the house, they found shoelaces and other bindings, lockpicking tools, a gun, the pink Sony camera, and stowed away in the back of an amplifier, underwear he'd collected from his victims. Also, computers, hard drives, thumb drives, media cards, which produced hundreds of images, photos of victims. Detective Galbraith went through them all. There were pictures of women from the towns in Colorado, and a picture of another um, woman with a Washington driver's license on her chest that was gagged and bound. It was Murray. I'm thinking, oh, thank God. I don't have just an unknown victim here that I may never know who she is. I know who this is. Well, I mean, I'm thinking he probably did that as a form of intimidation to her. I know who you are. You know, I'll have your name and your address. And, but it helped us, actually. Detective Galbraith contacted the Linwood PD, hoping to wrap up their case. She had the case file faxed to her. But what she remembers is the cover page of that fax, which read, false reporting. My heart sunk and I was shocked. I was like, oh, cuss word. Because I knew that was wrong. After police filed their false reporting charge against Marie... Mark O'Leary went on to rape at least four other women. The three women in Colorado, plus the woman he raped in the Seattle suburb near Marie. He pleaded guilty to five rapes and over 20 other felonies. He was sentenced to over 300 years in prison. In a post-sentencing interview with police, he admitted stalking victims over time, sometimes breaking and entering, in the weeks before an attack, to plan and make sure a woman was living by herself and didn't have a dog. He also said he knew police departments weren't great at talking to one another. So he planned his attacks, deliberately, in different cities. In March 2011, two years after Marie took a plea deal for filing a false police report, she got a visit from the head of the Linwood PD's Criminal Investigations Division, Commander Steve Ryder. We were invited in, you know, and told Marie who we were. They asked if I had somewhere quiet they could, you know, talk to me. And I, I just remember not knowing what I'm going to say as much as I, I thought about this moment. I, I, don't, I don't know how to say this. I don't even remember the words I used. They said they found the guy. They have this little piece of evidence, they said, that they had found a picture. And the picture they found was of my ID. And... Uh, I just broke down. They paid me back the $500 and told me that they were going to get my record expunged. She just looked stunned, and we were stunned, and it was it was hard. I didn't really say much after that. I just, I didn't really have much to say after they told me that. They were just like, we're sorry. We're deeply sorry, you know, about what had happened to you. It didn't mean much to me at all.
Sergeant Jeffrey Mason, the lead detective in the case, hadn't thought about Marie's case in years. He was sure she'd lied, so he just moved on. And then he got a phone call telling him that a serial rapist had been arrested in Colorado, that Marie had been raped by this man, that Marie had been telling the truth. Yeah, I was, I was driving to my office. It's one of those times that you're not going to forget, so. It was so shocking that um, this has been the, the one thing that, you know, where I seriously stepped back and um, questioned if, you know, if I should continue doing what I'm doing. Marie requested a personal apology from Mason, and she got one, in the same police station where two and a half years before she had been interrogated as a criminal suspect instead of treated as a rape victim. Marie says he seemed sincere and ashamed. He rubbed his head. He looked like a lost little puppy, is how she puts it. And then there were Shannon and Peggy, the two adults who mattered the most to Marie as a teenager. They are both still in her life today. This is Shannon. It was very complicated. Knowing they'd caught him, at the same moment knowing that it had actually happened, that she was actually raped, and nobody believed her especially the people in her life that had been supporting her and had been taking care of her and trying to mend her and help her, and we didn't believe her. And so I told her that. I didn't, I didn't want to say I was sorry over the phone that I wanted to do it in person. So she came up and we went for a walk and I just took her shoulders and I said, I want to look in your eyes and tell you from the bottom of my heart, I'm so sorry I doubted you and I didn't believe you and we didn't support you. And she said that was okay. Give me a big hug and and I was just so shocked that she would be willing to forgive me for that because it was such a huge thing and it went on for so long. The worst horrible part of this whole thing for me is that I did talk to the police. And I regret that now. Of course, this is Peggy. Shannon and Peggy have thought a lot about what happened and their role in it. They doubted Marie because of something so normal and human. They trusted their intuition about someone they knew really well. It's hard not to do that. They had a gut feeling that was wrong, but felt utterly true. But trauma works in complicated ways. You can't tell if someone was raped by how they're acting. 
They can be subdued and detached, but they can also be hyper and laughing. They can go back and forth. Sometimes they tell no one what happened. Sometimes they tell a lot of people. Sometimes they're not sure if the assault actually happened. At this point, Peggy knows that. But even now, she can't shake the feeling she had that led her to call police in the first place. Obviously, wish I hadn't, but on the other hand, there was all these other, other things, you know? I mean, the police and Mar- the way that Marie was acting, I mean, I, I you know, she on some level needs to take responsibility for that too, you know? I'm sorry, but that's true. And what do you mean? She she needs to realize at some point, and I think she does now that. Um, okay, I hate to say this, but um, you know, I mean, okay, now this is going to sound really bad. Like I'm blaming the victim, but some of the way that she was acting was part of the reason why it had the outcome that it did. And I'm not the only person that didn't believe her. But also it sounds like everyone who was doubting her didn't have much information about the way that rape trauma can function. And so is this about the way that she acted? Well, it shouldn't be about the way that she acted, but... um, Unfortunately, the reality is that that did influence. And it it sounds really harsh for me to say that. It's not her fault because I think it's totally a product of what she went through. But on the other hand, God, I I don't know. What she does know is that she never expected her feelings to derail an entire police investigation. She's mad police let that happen. Detective Mason takes full responsibility for what happened. Commander Ryder, Mason's boss, head of the Criminal Investigations Division, calls Marie's case, quote, a major failing, one his department thinks of often. He says the detectives should never have given Peggy's call the weight they did. The Linwood Police Department's own internal review of the case said the same. The report said the call, quote, caused the detectives to change their focus towards investigating the victim for false reporting. No one was disciplined in the case. Marie sued Lindwood and its police officers and wound up settling for $150,000. She also sued the Project Ladder managers and the nonprofit that oversaw Project Ladder, Cocoon House. Cocoon House issued a statement at the time saying, quote, Our hearts go out to Marie and her family. We strongly believe that Cocoon House and its employees acted appropriately on behalf of the client, the client meaning Marie. Cocoon House settled the lawsuit. Marie says her conclusion and her advice to any woman who wants to report a sexual assault, bring proof. I just think that all of the facts and everything needs to be laid out so that they can't go back and find something, you know, that you didn't tell them. I know, but you're not on trial. I know. You're right. I'm not really sure how to answer that. It just just seems like that's how everybody is. Really sucks that you have to be on trial after you go through something so traumatic like that. But it's just how it is and how people 
think. And that's what happened to me. This story was put together by Ken Armstrong and Robin Semian. Robin is a producer on our program. Ken is an investigative reporter for The Marshall Project, a print version of the story. A collaboration between The Marshall Project and ProPublica was published in December. You can read that online at themarshallproject.org or propublica.org. That version of the story was reported and written by Ken and ProPublica's T. Christian Miller, who also contributed to the radio version of the story. Just another homesick child Tired of running wild Ready to stand trial and move on Though I'm guilty in your sight Show some mercy tonight I can make it through this fight alone Oh, and Lord, oh, Lord, don't make it easy on me. Keep me working till I work it on Just please shine enough light on me till I'm free from this shadow of doubt. Well, our program was produced today by Brian Reed and Robin Semyon with Zoe Chase, Sean Cole, Neil Drumming, Stephanie Fu, Hannah Joffrey, Walt, Mickey Meek, Jonathan Menhevar, Alyssa Ship, Lily Sullivan, and Nancy Updike. Our senior producers, Brian Reed. Our editors, Joel Lovell. Julie Snyder is our editorial consultant. Our technical director is Matt Tierney. Seth Lind is our operations director. Emily Condon is our production manager. Elise Bergerson is our business operations manager. Elna Baker scouts stories for our program. Kimberly Henderson is our office coordinator. Research help from Christopher Sotala. Music help from Damian Gray from Rob Geddes. Special thanks today to Joanne Archambeau, Tim Mining at KUOW, and Dr. Rebecca Campbell. Our website, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. Thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Tori Malatia. You know, I asked him, why is he so beloved? Is it because he's so great at his job? Or is he just so good-looking? Crap, it could be either one, really. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life. Please just shine light Till I'm free from